0: Oh, Father, in Jesus' name, meet us as we pray and preach and worship this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask you this morning to open up your, your Bibles to once again to John chapter 4, the Gospel of John chapter 4. It's open there with me this morning, the second part of the text we read last week, the Samaritan woman meeting Jesus at the well stop on the road in Samaria. And I'm going to read verses 19 through 42 this morning. So we'll begin at John chapter 4, 19. And so John writes this. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, In spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he'll tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And at this point, his disciples came and they marveled that he talked with a woman, yet no one said, What do you seek or why are you talking with her? The woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city, and said to the men, Come. See a man who told me all things I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They went out of the city and came to him. In the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him anything to eat? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say... There are still four months, and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored, Others have labored, and you have entered into their labors. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there two more days. And many more believed because of his word. Then they said to the woman, now we believe not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. O Father, may we see such a revival in our land as we see in this ancient land, O Lord, just for the proclamation, for the revelation that Jesus Christ is Lord, and the Bible is the written word of God. Let that revelation be spread far and wide by your church, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we can see... (laughs) that sometimes evangelizing one person has a great effect. You never know what great effect it will have, but in this case, we see it had quite a widespread and wonderful effect. But let's go back to verses 21 and 22 where we read, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. Now this is the place in the narrative that we ended last week, if you remember. We focused more last week on the conversation between them and on the residing antagonism between the two cultures of the Jews and the Samaritans. And so I spoke about that. We noted that hers was a religion of tradition primarily. I think we established that like other religions, her traditions were not just traditions, friends. They were empty traditions. They had no basis in spiritual reality. We don't worship mountains. It doesn't matter if there's a temple on the mountain and we worship in the temple for God does not dwell in temples made with hands. And of course he gives her this theology lesson at this time and so he gives it to all of us. Traditions, religious traditions apart from the inspiration of God are by definition empty traditions. Her traditions it seems to me and I tried to developed this a little last week, were born out of covetousness and human inventiveness. They just wanted to have what the Jews really had, the oracles of God. It was the covetousness of an entire people who vied for relevance with regard to their connection to the Hebrew patriarchs of old and the prophesied Messiah. And we can see that they believed the prophecies. They were a society in search of Messiah. The Samaritans had their own temple, Friends, they had their own mountain. Of course, by this time, as I told you, it was 100 plus years um, having been destroyed by the Maccabees in 111 BC. But they had their temple, they had their mountain. The importance attached to the place of worship for them was born out of little more than their own ethnic pride. Some believe that Mount Gerizim, some actually believe this to this day, and perhaps are true, that Mount Gerizim, the Samaritan holy site, was indeed the mountain of Abraham's aborted sacrifice of Isaac. But the Savior's pointing out the insignificance of such distinctions. They were not only insignificant distinctions, but they were temporary things, and they were all about to come to an end, and he's prophesying it. The hour is coming and now is, he said, when you'll neither worship there nor here. They were things that a mere 40 years from the time of that conversation would become moot. Moot because the destruction of the Jerusalem temple by Rome came in 70 AD by Titus's armies under Vespasian. So no sooner did she observe, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet, did the prophetic status of Jesus show himself. Of course, they wouldn't know that that prophecy would be fulfilled a mere 40 years hence. He said the hour is coming when you'll neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. In other words, friends, get your religious life in order. The hour of trial is coming. Real testing, not not who's who in the religious world. Not which mountain is the holy mountain. No, real testing, real tragedy is coming. Get your devotional life in order, he's saying to her. Come to know the God you pretend to honor now. You don't know him. Friends, you cannot worship God without knowing him. Search him out for the things that please him, and friends, search him out for the things that offend him and put those away. These are not the times to come before God, insisting on remaining in our own sins. Friends, theology still matters. You know, we're kind of the inheritors of the ecumenical movement, as much as we try not to be. Friends, I don't try to start arguments where there shouldn't be one, but there's certain things that we just have to hold to. And theology matters. If your theology is straight, you need to be aware that both the object of your worship and the rituals of your worship are of utmost importance to God. It's not where that matters. We've established that. It's not beloved or ancient traditions that matter. I see so many, well, television productions of like travel channel types of things where they show the rituals of other countries their sacred easter rituals and things like that and they dress up and they go to it's very festive and it looks joyous to me but there's always the obligatory statues of mary and the paper mache marys and the saints and the putting the dollars on the on you know on the effigies and i always think it's fun it's colorful it's festive and it's empty as hell this is nothing to that but ours is a god who must be known if he is to be worshipped. He must be known personally in order that our offerings are acceptable to him. What does he say? When he doesn't like something someone does, depart from me, I never knew you. It's about knowing. Knowing is important. Theology matters. We worship what we know. Friends, don't you praise God that we worship what we know and who we know? There are many today that think worship is like fashion. You know, fashions come and go. You look at yourself in old pictures from the '70s with the wide ties and the maybe you had the uh, the open shirt with the leisure suit and the big gonky uh, you know collar of the shirt that went over the big gonky lapel of the polyester light blue or orange suit, and you have and you know you have the the chest hair and the medallion, the obligatory sort of macho man thing. And you look at how silly that looks. Friends, worship isn't like that. Worship stays the same. Worship can't change because God's immutable. There's certain things you don't do. You don't make statues and call them gods. Even if you, they're nice Christian representatives, you don't do that. Certain things you don't do. You don't make it up as you go along. And you don't do it because it's trendy and fashionable. And you don't do it because the younger generation doesn't like the old fuddy-duddy religion. You train, you train them that God is not new and improved. He's the same old God, and he likes it that way, but he's new every day. We choose to do those things that, some, that seem good to us in the moment or in the era, right? We may invent the rituals that please us and presume that, they, that God must accept them. And we say, well, we, we do it, we do it in, intentionally. We do it with good intentions, Right? Friends, our God is not a God of good intentions. He's a God of knowledge. You don't come to God with your good intentions and call it worship. You come to God in a way prescribed by God, and then it's worship. And when they cease, when these things we invent cease to please us, when they cease to be fashionable, then we jettison them and we get new and improved rituals. You know, there used to be a song, Give Me That Old Time Religion, um, Maybe we ought to sing that song instead of singing, Just As I Am. But the balance of Scripture reveals that this is an empty, even dangerous strategy of approaching God. And we're going to see that. Verses 23 and 24. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. And so there's some truth, and there's some unveiling of God's mission. Jesus speaks of true worshipers and false worshipers. Friends, if there's true worshipers, then there's false worshipers, right? He speaks of knowing what we worship and not knowing, right? Worshiping by revealed knowledge or worshiping in ignorance. He said that God is seeking worshipers to seek him. Friends, God is a seeker. He's a searcher. Remember, it was God who sought out Abraham, not Abraham who sought out God. Abraham was over there in Ur of the Chaldees worshiping the moon. And he was called out to a land that you do not know, right? God surgically removed Abraham. And you know why he did it? Because Abraham belonged to him. He can do what he wants. So God sought out Abraham and brought him in to Canaan. God sought out Moses. He sought Gideon and David and Jonah. He sought Peter and Andrew, James and John. He sought out Matthew the publican and Paul the Pharisee. And so now he seeks this woman. This meeting at the well is a case in point of God searching and is seeking. God the Son is doing the seeking here. Jesus is seeking her. The apostles were sent off to seek food, but Jesus stayed on course of his mission and sought souls. And they still don't get it. (laughs) It's so funny. But that's how we are. And we shouldn't uh, make fun or, or, or laugh at, at them. Did anyone give him any food? He says, I have food of which you do not know. Now, if, I, if someone said that to me, I would know they weren't talking about food. Has anyone given him any food? So you have this little um, snippet in the story where the apostles are still not getting what Jesus is doing here. He's saving a woman, but she's a seed, and the culture that she's from is the harvest. And it's coming now. He said the fields are white with harvest and you don't even see it. So God the Son's doing the seeking. The apostles sought food. He sought souls. And this one soul was the seed. The many Samaritan souls became the harvest. We need to long for such a harvest in our time. What a thing it would be. It can be. We get cynical or we get apathetic because we see so much bad and so little of good. And maybe you're a person like me that talks to everybody about the Lord and you don't see much change if I told you how many people told me this week they'd be here that I evangelized this week and not one is here you'd be amazed we need to long for the real harvest the revival among the Samaritans was reminiscent of that revival in Nineveh where Jonah went and preached remember and God didn't even give him an out he said they were going to be deposed everything was going to be destroyed it's too late but yet they repented anyway, and God relented. Jonah never said, it. maybe he'll relent if you, if, if you try really hard. He said, no, they put away their idols. They, they fasted and prayed as a whole culture. and God relented and blessed them for another, I think another 139 years. I think that's the number. I have to go check. And eventually even Nineveh, of course, was, was taken. Jesus focuses here on acceptable worship. And acceptable worship begins with knowledge, friends. We know what we worship. Our Jewish Savior is who we worship. If you do not know God personally, then I must inform you, you have never truly worshipped him. And it's time you get to know him. Recall Paul in Athens when he observed this very thing of another culture, the Greek culture in Athens of the first century. He was all alone. His compatriots had gone off to Troas or Somewhere, I forget where they, they went off to, but um, he was alone. He's in the marketplace, the Agora marketplace, right, where the gatherings are. And the aristocrats are there, the people that don't have jobs, right? Just a lot of money, but no jobs. And they're philosophers, and there's, there's a lot of philosophers from Athens. And friends, they had free speech. <laughs> so the little Hebrew Pharisee comes in, and he wants to preach. Anybody could preach. Nobody cared. Nobody silenced him or canceled him, even in ancient Greece. So Paul came out and said, men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. But guess what? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that you carry your papier-mâché saints down the streets and pin dollar bills on them. You're very religious, but it doesn't matter. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What an inn. What a cultural inn to evangelize, huh? They had one to the unknown God. Guess what? I know the unknown God. What an awesome thing. I would love to go into Boston Common and have there be an unknown God uh, monument there. And I could say, I know this God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. <clears throat> so the apostle offers them this theology lesson. Friends, theology is still important. People like to say things like, I don't care how I was saved, I just know I was saved. Well, that's good, I'm glad you're saved, but it's, what do you do with your Christian life if you don't want to move on from that? It's like Ken used to say, the guy that quit smoking, the only thing he ever had that he ever could claim that he did is that he quit smoking. 20 years from now, it's like, yeah, I quit smoking. What have you done for me lately? And so the apostle offers them this theology lesson to bring light into dark and ignorant souls. And he said, God who made the world and everything in it. Friends, they had a God who made the world and everything in it. The only thing is, the world was already made when Cronus came onto the scene in Greek theology or mythology I should say the world was already here the world preceded the God and the God brought about other things from this ready made um, cosmos but not the Hebrew God this was new to their ears God made the world he made everything in it which means all of you even those of you who worship all the various gods from all these various gleaming marble temples along the road But this God is Lord of heaven and earth and does not dwell in temples made with hands. In other words, your temples are empty. The real God doesn't dwell there. They're nice. (laughs) They're beautiful. They're still standing thousands of years later, but they're empty. He says, nor is God worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything since he gives life and breath to all things. And then he ends his theologically infused sermon with this important divine imperative. He said, therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think of the divine nature like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Nothing shaped by art or man's devising will suffice as an accoutrement to better worship. It's not how worship is done. And then he says this wonderful statement I quote it often. Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked. Friends, if we were ever in a time of ignorance, it is today. This is the most obvious Romans one world we were ever in. Yeah, so these times of ignorance God overlooked. Oh, I hope he overlooks this time of ignorance. But he calls men everywhere to repent. Friends, that's what revival is. We think it's, oh, God gives us all our elected officials and everything's nice again. He Closes the border and you know, you know, fixes all the schools. friends, rep- that can be a corollary of revival, all of that, like America being born in the first place. They talked about last week at the Pilgrim Monument how that was an outgrowth of the Great Awakening a couple of decades earlier. Liberty comes out of Christianity. I say when they want to go around and develop democracies all over the world, I said, democracies are for Christians. People can't handle democracies. Without, without Christian truths, without self-government of their own souls, you can't handle it. It's, it's, for, it's a Christian thing. Democracy doesn't work for other peoples. You can say, oh yeah, well, the, the ancient Greeks were democratic. They had a republic the ancient Romans. I know, but 60 to 70% of all the people were slaves. And the rest of them just voted on things that helped all the aristocrats. The things they claim now that aren't true were true then. These times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he's appointed a day on which he'll judge the world. you got to remember that. Get serious about religion because he appointed a day on which he'll judge the world. And this is exactly what Jesus is intimating to the woman at the well. A proper approach to worship begins with confession of previous ignorance. When Saul of Tarsus was approached by the Lord, he confessed his former ignorance and repented of his former sins. Paul makes this confession regarding his own journey to proper worship of the one true God. To Timothy, he writes this, Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. He confessed his previous ignorance. Not ignorant anymore. He met the risen Lord on the road to Damascus. It does not take long in any religious discussion, friends, to determine whether the party you're talking to has any personal knowledge or relationship with the God of Scripture. People don't even talk about their religion that way. They talk about their practices and their rituals and their traditions and their own personal devotion. They don't talk about really knowing the attributes of the one true and living God. It doesn't take long to know the person you're talking to does not know the God you worship. And I must say that the religious practices we engage in reveal the whole matter of whether or not we've been apprised of God's will regarding worship. Friends, if you're still lighting candles and thinking that smoke is a prayer, you've missed something. If you still think there's patron saints of this and patron saints of that and you should pray to them, you've missed something. If you still think his actual body and blood are squeezed into a little wafer, you're missing something. That's not receiving Christ, friends. It doesn't take long to know that someone's traditions are just empty. And by empty, what do I mean? Non-biblical. Unbiblical from another source and all other sources are spurious sources. From the beginning, God has prescribed the way in which true worshipers must must worship him. The Greek word most often used for worship, and the word used here is the word proskuneo. I love the word proskuneo. It means what you would think it means. It means reverence, obeisance, those kinds of things, bowing down, right? Pros, meaning bend, or like we get the word pros, prostrate ourselves, right? You prostrate. Men always want to say prostate and use it wrong. But prostrate is like to lie down. And in, in, in this connection, it means to bow. And cuneo means to kiss. Now, for some religions, that means to kiss the hands of the, of the Pope. And that's proscuneo, sorry to tell you. That's worshiping a false god. All right? But that's not what true worship is. That's when you bow and kiss the hand of Christ himself. At least symbolically in your rituals. cuneo. What an intimate word to describe our approach to God. Can you imagine the blasphemy that it was when Judas betrayed the Lord with a cuneo? He used the actual worship practice in a false way. Worship is our approach to God, friends. And from the beginning, God has prescribed these things. What an intimate word, proscuneo, is to describe our approach. We bow and we kiss. We are the intimate disciples of our beloved, beloved Savior. We bow to him, and because he is who he is, we bow to no one else. So God, like us, would not receive so intimate and personal a greeting from enemies, opponents, or strangers. We're members of the family of God, and so we're invited to this kind of intimacy with God. He is pleased for us to come into his throne room. Walk in boldly, not arrogantly, he doesn't mean that. He means walk in boldly, like your son would walk into your study to ask you for something, like a few bucks. But when we presume that God must receive us just as we are, we presume too much. Moses approached the burning bush hastily. I must go forth and see this great sight. And he starts charging up the hill. And God stopped him and said, do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moses had never been on holy ground before. He didn't know how to stand. So he had to come with something. He had to take something off. I've always told you that when you enter into the church of God, and I don't mean the building. I mean when you enter into the church through belief in Christ, when you're immersed, baptized into the Holy Spirit, right? Through the baptizer Jesus Christ. When you enter into the church of God through faith in Christ, you take on new things and you leave old things behind. That's what Moses was learning. You are Saved into something, which is the church, it's the household of God, it's the bride of Christ, and then you're saved out of something. Peter said it this way, be saved from this perverse generation. When God saves us, he saves us out of this perverse generation. That verse from Acts 2.40 has new meaning to me today. I've never seen so perverse a time as, as we're seeing. of Thought, it's like thought isn't done anymore. Right conclusions with obvious evidence can't be reached. And so Paul said, Do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Friends, you may not know it, but your light is shining to someone. And if it's not, you need to dust it off a little bit and let your light shine. Because that's what we're called to in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. So with regard to knowledgeable worship, go back further. Go back to the very beginning. What about Cain? We read this from Genesis. Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. Boy, God must need some lessons on proper fatherhood. That's what the modernist would say. How dare you treat one son better than the other? I know, I got away with it. I had three sons. I treated them all different and all the same. God's just telling, God is being a father who's training his son in truth and holy things. This is not acceptable. This is. Do this. Don't do that. Isn't that what fathers do? And it's not mean. And if you're a young father, then do that. God told a disgruntled Cain that he too could be accepted if only he would make a more acceptable offer I think Cain was like the first low self esteem guy like the first one that was like you know thought that being a victim gave him power I think he was the first one I think Cain started that he was uh the first blame shifter too he was the one like I don't know who killed him his blood cried out to the ground let the blood tell you who killed him I don't know who did it am I my brother's keeper by the way, when people say that, usually you're saying it backwards. The answer is, yes, of course you're your brother's keeper. Where is he? Right? So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? I remember saying that to my boys. Why are you angry? Um, why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, you'll not be accepted. And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. And its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Sin's at the threshold of worship, friends. Rule over it. Decide what to bring in and... What to leave out? You know, it's funny about this, why are you angry? I have an old anecdote from the boys when Daniel was about um, about 12 years old, I'm going to guess. And uh, the story, I've I've called it in my book that will eventually come out on raising adults. It's called The Story of Daniel and the Lawn. You've heard of Daniel and the Lion. This is Daniel and the Lawn. And I went to work that morning, and I said, Daniel, would you cut the lawn for me? He used to be good at that at 12 years old. And he, and he said, yes, I, I will. And I came home from work, and I looked out, and the lawn was still long, and I couldn't understand why it wasn't cut. And then I saw Daniel come out of the woods in the back of the house where the swamp is, and he had the old friends with him, you know, like uh, J.T. and Josh and some of those guys, and they had the black eye stuff on, and they were dressed in their fatigues, and they had machine guns, and, and they were really fearful terrorists in those days. And they came out of the woods, and I said... Dan, you said you are going to cut the lawn. You didn't do it. And he said, no. I said if I have time, I would cut the lawn. And I said, oh, um, so how long have you been you know, playing in the swamp? I think he said three hours. You could do that all day. At least they weren't doing this on the couch, in the basement, in the dark. Um, so they came out of there, and I said, well, don't you think you should cut the lawn? And, he, and you know what he said to me? If you're going to make me feel bad about it, I'll cut the lawn. And I said... I'm not making you feel bad about it, but I'm glad you feel bad about it because you said you'd cut the lawn. You didn't cut the lawn. And now I could have told that kid, well, here's what you need to do. Go up to your room, get on your knees, right, and confess your sin and and get right with God. I could have said, sing a psalm, sing a hymn, but none of that will make you right. What will make you right? Cutting the lawn. That was the holiest thing he could do at that time. And so he did, and hence he's the man he is today. Friend, sin lies at the threshold of worship. And in the case with Cain, God was magnanimous, but he's God. And we don't, can't expect him to always be magnanimous and gentle with us. He doesn't have to be as he was with Cain and as Jesus was with this woman. We may remember God's dealing with other such offerings, even the sons of Aaron. You remember Aaron? He was the right lieutenant of Moses. He was his brother, right? Aaron, the high priest. The one who had access to the Ark of the Covenant. Even the sons of Aaron were not insulated from the wrath of God for those who presumed to offer profane things. We read from Leviticus. Then Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it, put incense on it, and offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. They tried to worship God. You know the censer? It's like a little metal fire, incense burner. You see it in the Catholic Church still today. But they would swing it around, and would have fire, and would give off incense. You know the type of incense was prescribed in Exodus, and it's, we don't know exactly what the profane fire was, but it was probably just the wrong thing, something that pleased them. And so fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord because he had not commanded them to approach him that way. Worship is serious business. So this, in this incident, we should observe Moses' reaction to the event. Now remember, they're Aaron's son, but they're Moses' nephews. Poof, right? So Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. And before all the people, I must be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Friends, it was only one thing worse than a man who came before God in an unholy way. And that's for a priest to come before God in an unholy way. Friends, worship of Christ by his beloved is a joyous business. But we must be mindful always that it is a serious business as well. The Bible says sing and make melody in your heart to the Lord. There's a great joy in worship. But worship is serious business. It's the business of sinners, presuming access to holiness. It's best done in an informed way and not in ignorance. And as a a caveat to this rule, as I wrote that, as I wrote those words, it's best done in an informed way. Your, Your great knowledge of God is a liability to you as well. For a man may not possess such knowledge and then decide not to worship according to knowledge. In other words, those who claim knowledge must express that in worship. Worship for the man who knows God is no longer optional. Not for the true believer, the ones to whom the Lord has revealed himself. Peter wrote of this very thing when he wrote these words. He said, For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, They are again entangled in them and overcome. The latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. Those are fearful words to believers. And in case the message is not readily received, the apostle makes the case with even more illustrative emphasis. But it has happened to them according to the true proverb. A dog returns to his own vomit. Have you ever had a dog? (laughs) I had this. That's pretty graphic. Especially when you know that that's something dogs do. But he ain't talking about dogs. He said, the dog returns to his vomit and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. He's not talking about pigs and dogs. He's talking about people who profess Christ and turn away. To say, I came in. I heard the preacher. I've been apprised of the truth regarding the identity and the nature of God. It's a wonderful thing. But to say all those things and then add, I heard, but I rejected it, that's a fearful thing. To say, I heard it, but it's not for me, is self-condemnation. To say, I heard the gospel and turned away is to say, I heard the gospel and turned away from God. I turned away from the one path of salvation, the one way into the eternal presence of God. There is no other way. There's no other gospel. There's no other God. We recognize no other gods. Well, I kind of like the way of Buddha. I thought Buddha had some good things going for him. Do you know in Buddhism there's no God? Paul wrote it this way to the Galatians very emphatically. I marvel that you're turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. And then he says this, but even if we, we apostles, or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received let him be accursed it's a fearful thing to preach a false gospel we have to preach knowingly we have to worship knowingly and you know it's a hard job to be a preacher today because if you're preaching to knowing people they take you aside after the sermon and they say you were wrong in a couple things and if they're right and you're wrong you have to repent of those things you can't let it stand so when you got a knowledgeable congregation it makes the Makes the job harder (laughs) in some ways. Um, To sit among the saints, to hear the word of life, and worse, to partake of the sacrament without a love of Christ and respect for his shed blood is a blasphemy of the highest sort. Friends, Pastor Billy explains it very well every first Sunday of the month when we are ready to partake of the sacrament of God in the Lord's Supper. If you are not a believer in Christ, if for you he is not seen as the way and the truth and the life by whom he alone you come to the Father, then you are not welcome to partake of that sacrament. And I don't want to see it unless you can say to me that Christ is your Savior and God is your Father. This is something reserved for the saints, and we don't police it. And you partake of it of your own risk if you have not made your peace with God. Woe is unto you who defiles that sacrament. That is a holy sacrament. Bill explains it very well. So let me add to that. Take it seriously. To partake of the sacrament without a love for Christ and respect for his shed blood is a blasphemy of the highest sort. We have to remember what this generation of evangelicals, it seems to me, have forgotten. And that is that the gospel is not an invitation to come. It is a command to come. Just as Paul's message to the Athenians was God now commands men everywhere to repent. Does that sound like an invitation? He commands men everywhere to repent. The only reason men go to hell is they disobey God's command to repent. That's the only reason. There's many ways in which they do that, but that's essentially the only reason. Verses 28 through 30. Then the woman left her water pot, went her way into the city, and said to the men, come and see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They went out of the city and came to him. Does, it, does that strike you odd a little bit? Here's this woman in this ancient Semitic culture who's a serial adulterer, who lives out of wedlock with another man who's not her husband. That's called fornication. Serious sin before God, right? Jesus sees that in her, points it out to her, tells her her sins. She goes back in among the Samaritans, all of whom are looking for the Christ, supposedly, right? They all know the laws of Moses. They know the traditions. They claim the mountain of Abraham's sacrifice, of almost sacrifice of Isaac, is right there in their, in, in their province. And yet they listen to this serial adulterer. She must have been a woman of some um, impressive credential. They must have thought of her as a good and wise person, even amidst all these other things. Because first of all, she spoke to the men. That's generally not how it's done in those cultures. The woman doesn't come in with the gospel. But there it was. I was always a little amazed at that. Did anyone ever pick up on that? That she came in and all, the only thing she had in her favor is she met Christ and recognized him. And that's all she said to them. Could he be this Christ? So the first part of the message The first part of the passage has to do with worship, and the second has to do with evangelism. And they're two horns of the same bull, if you will. I've always told you that the first and only proper expression of love for God is worship of God, for He alone is worthy of worship. And those who know Him are alone capable of rendering acceptable worship. Did you ever notice whenever anyone, even the great prophets of the Bible, whenever they met God, they fell to their knees? As soon as they were in his presence, remember Isaiah in particular? You know, Christ appears to him, he falls to his knees, depart from me. I'm a man of unclean lips and unclean words, and I live amongst a people of unclean lips and unclean words. There's nothing clean about me. And in the light of Christ, he sees his own depravity. That's how you approach God. And then he lifts you up, right? He alone is worthy of worship, and those who know him are alone capable of rendering acceptable worship. But there's a second response. It's called evangelism. Worship is like the pot boiling with love, right? And evangelism is the pot boiling over with joyous exuberance of love. I can't cape this to myself. I've got to tell people. I've got to tell people. Nothing else matters. You know, I was going through some old stuff when I was preparing for a, a recent eulogy. And I took out some old writings and things. And I saw that when I had first come to Christ, didn't even have a church yet, (laughs) I had come to Christ, I wrote letters to people, elaborate, long, probably boring letters to them. But I was just so bold. I I wrote these letters and I sent them and I remember doing that. I was overflowing with all these friends and relatives that needed to know what I now knew. And so I wrote them, and and I, I think it was an old typewriter, I don't even think it was computer yet, back in the 80s. And um, I wrote these letters about you have to know these things. And it separated me from them for the most part. No one called back, oh, thank you for telling me this. I I believe with you. No one did that. And I forgot about it, and I had them at the bottom of a drawer in my desk in my office. All these very bold statements about my newfound... Of course, they would have said, ah, this is just one new thing, Danny's, and he was into that, and then he was into this, now he's into this. And that's what happens. But as the years went by, and I... I guess, exhibited the light of Christ in some ways. One way was just stability, not turning away from it for any reason. You know, today people are talking about the public schools and how they treat, they teach some of these abominable things to kids. We saw that coming 30 years ago and pulled out. Um, I, I didn't think of us as pioneers at the time, but we were. We saw this coming and now it's here. And now the soccer moms are saying it. They're saying, how did we get here? Well, you voted these guys in, and now this is what happens in a democracy, right? They've made useful idiots of us all. So we pulled out. We had a whole new life. So that that was part of who I had become in Christ, and they saw it. And they saw it as a great weakness at first, because who can pull kids out of school and expect them to be normal, productive people, right? And of course, the boys are normal, productive people, and they're... And normal is no is no great thing. They're, they're above normal, in my view. And so are yours. Our kids know things that other kids just don't know. I was talking with the boys the other day. How come nobody knows anything anymore? You know? 1492, what's that? You know, 1620, what's that? I mean, nobody knows anything anymore. It's strange to us who live our lives trying to know things, right? And trying to see history unfold. It's the easiest thing in the world today to be a prophet. All you have to do is see what's happened for the last 20, 30, 100 years, and you know what's going to happen if people act a certain way. And we knew this with the schools, and we pulled out. And so many of you pulled out. But there's the second response, and there's this overflowing thing where you tell people about your experiences, and that's what she did. Friend, she didn't preach the gospel. She just said, I, I met a guy, and he told me everything I ever knew. Could be the Christ. We're all looking for the Christ. That's a special thing. He could tell me everything I ever did. So obviously the conversation was longer than John recorded, right? So evangelism is this boiling over with joyous exuberance. Nothing else matters. Friends, the woman left her water pot. The whole discussion was about the water pot. You have nothing from which to draw this living water. What's this living water? You don't even have a water pot. You need to ask me for a drink. He said, oh, but you should be asking me. For her to leave the water pot, and we don't know how far it was back into the city. Maybe it was far, but she leaves the water pot behind. It didn't matter anymore. Not that thirsty after all. Got something better, right? They left their nets and followed him. Peter said, see, we've left all and followed you. People leave stuff. He said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. You go and preach the kingdom of God. He doesn't accept excuses at all, does he? Another said to him, Lord, I'll follow you. But let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. But Jesus said to him, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. I think I did a series on that verse. In another place we read this, then Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. That's the evangelism part, fishers of men. So we may argue as to our calling with God to evangelism. We may say that it's for others to do, yet we see from scripture that those who love God joyously, dutifully preach the gospel. You may say, I'm not a preacher. And friends, that's legitimate. Not everybody's a preacher. But what did Jesus say regarding this? Friends, this woman was not a preacher. She just had conversation, right? It's about conversation. Conversation, most conversion begins with conversation. Verse 38, I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. In other words, other people have done the preaching for you. Just go reap now. Others have labored and you've entered into their labors. Friends, God seeks, God calls, and God elects those who come. But he also elects the means of salvation. And the means of salvation is the voice of the saints. It's the voice of those who love God and have been made new by faith in God. Friends, the means of salvation is in our hands. It has been entrusted to us just like the oracles of God, the scripture, have been entrusted to the church. The oracles belong to us, not to the scholars in the universities who have no idea what they're talking about. As I said this morning, Luther was in seminary for two years before he even saw a written Bible. No wonder he climbed the Scala Sancta on his hands and knees, praying a rosary at every step. I think there's 99 or 100 steps on that thing. Friends, it's the word of God written and spoken that saves souls. There's no other means. That's how it's done. God determined that. Friends, others have labored. You don't need to write or translate your own Bibles. Other people have done that. You don't need to found churches. Other people have done that. You don't need to prepare weekly sermons, but you do need to enter into those labors. Jesus also said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. In other words, don't think so highly of your food. Because my food, in other words, our food, is to do the will of him who sent us. And he did send us. And so this one beloved soul entered in, this woman at the well. What do you think? Do you think she repented of her sins? I'll bet she did. When you meet Christ, things change. She probably went home and said, Honey, we can't do this any longer. We either got to walk down the aisle and get married, or you got to leave. Or I got to leave. I don't know whose house it was. Sounds like it was hers. And so she entered in. She had little knowledge. She had abundant sin. But she was made anew by close proximity to Christ and the implanted word of truth. I who speak to you am he. And so she entered into his labor. And so verse 39, And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified that he told me everything I ever did. They hadn't met him yet, and they already believed. Now what she preached was not the gospel, but it was her personal experience with the Lord. And the Samaritans, who it seems from her earlier testimony were looking for Messiah, because we read this, The woman said to him, "'I know that Messiah is coming who's called Christ. "'When he comes, he will tell us all things. "'And Jesus said to you, I who speak to you am he.'" Friends, this is a culture in search of something. I look at our culture, and I don't know if we're in search of something. I guess we're in search of something, but if we are, it's the wrong thing. They were at least in name searching for the right thing. And he came along, and it was like a fulfilled expectation People don't expect God to come into their life, so bring Him into their lives. Thanksgiving's coming; what a great time to do it! Thankfulness is a primary function of worship—grateful attitude to God. And we have a national day of it. Is tomorrow Columbus Day? <laughs> Used to be. <laughs> do you know why they had Columbus? They got Indigenous People's Day now, and I see the the uh, news and the. People are out there in the indigenous costumes. And I think, fine. Have an indigenous people's day. We can honor indigenous people. Everyone's got to have their day, I guess. But you know why they had Columbus Day? Because back in the 1930s, the uh, persecuted group in the country were the Italians, my grandparents. So they gave them a day because Columbus was Italian, right? From Genoa. <laughs> they gave them a day. So they took it away now. I guess because we're not persecuted anymore. I guess we're not. I haven't heard too many Italian jokes lately. I'm very offended by those, by the way. But I mean, they took the day away from here and gave it over here. You would think, have another day. We got a lot of days. Have another day. Italians like Indians. Whatever. That's the way it goes. We lost our day. So it wasn't the gospel that she preached. It was her experience that she preached. But she preached it to a culture that was searching for God. They were searching for something, but not just something. Something that was prophesied. They knew the prophecy. The woman entered into the labors of those who went before her. She added something of her own experience. And that's not the gospel, friends. But the Samaritans, who were also searchers, knew that it was not the gospel. So they sought out the source for themselves. They knew it wasn't the gospel, but it might lead to the gospel. And it might lead to the truth. So when the Samaritans had come to him, John wrote, they urged him to stay with them. I always says, if you thought I was Jesus, you would never let me out of your sight. I'm glad you do, because if you thought that, that's a pretty dumb conclusion. But if you th- thought a man of God had the word of God, you wouldn't let him out of your sight. And he stayed there two days. Now remember who he's staying with. He's staying with the Samaritans. He's Jewish, and all the, and all the apostles are Jewish, and they must have thought, two days? Boy, what's old Zebedee going to say about this when we get back to Capernaum? And then it says, and many more believed because of his own word. And they said to the woman, now we believe not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him. And we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Our Father, we praise you for our personal recognition of the holiness and greatness of the one and true and living God. It is a gift from God. We praise you for the revelation of your word and for knowledgeable worship. We pray and thank you for these things. In Jesus' name, we are your blessed church. Amen.